People in positions of power so often want to divide and conquer. And they want us to believe that there is no such thing as someone who is Afro-Latino. I think one of the things that we have strived to do in my building is to encourage teachers to take risks, to try different things, but really make that Black history come alive for all of our students. And the teacher brought up Emmett Teal and talked about a lynching. And the, one of the kids said, what is a lynching? And the teacher paused and said, ooh, I don't know if I can teach that. We're seeing this real flowering of organizing on college campuses again. And that wouldn't, that likely wouldn't have happened if the unions hadn't been strategic about dealing with policy oscillation, AKA flip-flopping. The administration was very obviously sitting on these predisciplinary investigations and not issuing any discipline in those regard until after Bailey Reen's investigation was done. A moldy carpet is a health and safety issue for, I hope, obvious reasons. February marks Black History Month in the United States. It's definitely been reflected this last week with the Labour Radio Podcast Network. This week we're going to present to you three shows that explore the place and the significance of black history in distinctly different ways. Manuel Capacito del Zia, Janela Hines from the United Federation of Teachers of New York discuss the importance of centering Afro-Latina voices within the contemporary labor movement, the need to address the continued underrepresentation of black members within positions of leadership. Following two shows are really a tale of two different states. On the OEA Grow podcast, Natika Samuels interviewed Kevin Adams, Colorado social studies teacher, the host of the Two Dope Teachers podcast. Adams discusses the full gamut of activities that are on offer to students during Black History Month, how to create a positive environment where students feel free to explore questions of culture, politics and heritage, in a lively and meaningful way. By contrast, we'll then bring you a new report on the startling environment that teachers are facing in the Sunshine State in Educating from the Heart, brought to you by the Florida Education Association. In this particular episode, Tina and Luke spoke to Reagan Miller, Jabari Hosey, and Jen Cousins, not professional educators themselves, but rather parent advocates and activists who describe some of the classroom realities faced by teachers at the present time when they're attempting to teach black history. Now parents can respond in productive ways that avoid the shouting and hectoring of adversarial school board meetings. In the second half of today's show, we're going to the Heartland Labour Forum, where Bloomberg News Labour reporter Robert Iafala brings us an update from the National Labour Relations Board. We'll stay in the Midwest, WRT Community Radio in Madison, Wisconsin, reports on recent charges of a hostile work environment at the Henry Violence Zoo. It has nothing to do with the animals. Then we'll visit New Zealand, where Auckland Union representative Justine Sachs digs into the mailbag on Red Dead Redemption and addresses the age-old question of what to do when your workplace has a mouldy carpet. Finally, we began with Black History Month, and that's where we'll end too, sharing with you a trailer for Aspie's new I Am podcast, a 
forthcoming series that explores the legacy of the 1968 Memphis Sanitation Strike. Here's this week's show. Bienvenidos. Welcome to El Cafecito del Día. Brought to you by the Labor Council for Latin American Advancement. This Black History Month, LACLA has decided to honor an Afro-Latina labor leader currently making history in New York, Janela T. Hines, a long-standing member of LACLA and the Coalition of Black Trade Unionists. Throughout her career, she has been committed to equity and empowering underserved communities. In this episode, we are going to talk to Janela about her experience in today's labor movement. You have done some amazing work as a vice president of academic high schools in the UFT, the United Federation of Teachers, and as the secretary treasurer of the New York City Central Labor Council. How does your identity as an Afro-Latina inform the work that you do in these positions? Identity is foundational to the work we do as labor activists and leaders, if we're doing it the right way. If we are grounded in who we are and what our experiences have been as we've moved through the world as working people, as people who live in communities, as people who are striving to make the world a better place. Identity is at the foundation of that. And who I am as a woman, who I am as a Black woman, as a Latina, is instrumental to the work. Being a Black woman of Latina foundation provides me a really interesting lens on how the world engages, not only with people who are newcomers to the country and all that they bring with them. I have this complex engagement of experiences around the immigrant experience, around language, around culture, around how we are going to engage with each other. Anti-Blackness is prevalent throughout our political system, through our social system. And I am thinking about that, especially as a darker skinned woman, I think about that all the time and the ways in which we can fight to upend that and to stop that from taking root in the ways in which we engage. I think about how working people's voices can be heard, whether our voices use a Spanish language and an accent that is colored from Puerto Rico or the Dominican Republic or Panama, or if we are English-speaking Latinos who are grounded in culture but may not speak Spanish, and the ways in which that brings us together or separates us. It's always what I think about when I think about how we are going to provide opportunities to each other, how we're going to represent each other's needs and desires, and how we're going to support ensuring that people of color, particularly Black people and Latino people, have the opportunity to come together to elevate each other in places where folks really don't want us to be represented and don't want to see us thrive. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, Black workers have the highest rate of unionization compared to white, Asian, and Latino workers. We don't see this reflected in leadership. What can LACLA and the neighbor movement do to make sure that union leadership is reflected in its membership base? It's an issue that we don't have the leadership reflective of the members that we serve. And there are a lot of reasons for that. Tradition is part of it. There are patriarchal expectations around what leadership looks like. 
we know that the ways in which women often move through the world are not always seen as leadership worthy. We have some work to do, particularly around Black women and how Black women move through the world. We are often seen as helpers and not necessarily seen as the voice with the vision. There's some work that needs to be done around how Black women in particular are positioned in the labor movement. I think that the work that LACLA does in partnership with the other constituency groups, and LACLA has been out front in promoting how other constituency groups can partner with each other, how we can elevate the work of the constituency groups, whether it's CLUE or CBTU or APRI, and certainly Pride and Apollo, but making sure that voices are being heard, making sure that we are partnering with each other, making sure that when issues address Black workers, that LACLA is on the record speaking about what that means for all workers, what that means for all residents or all citizens. That's such important work because people in positions of power so often want to divide and conquer. And they want us to believe that there is no such thing as someone who is Afro-Latino. They want us to believe that you can't hold these identities at the same time in the same place, that we need to be fighting with each other for limited resources. When we work together, when we can find that abundance, we can magnify it because we're partnering with each other in ways that are strategic and intentional and empowering for all of us. Thank you for that. Janela, on behalf of LACLA, Thank you for sharing your wisdom and your knowledge. Hasta la próxima. No guards, no masters, only helpful advice. It's Red Dead Redemption with Auckland Union Representative Justine Sachs. Kia ora Justine, how's it going? Kia ora H, it's, you know, windy, wild, and you? <laughs> yeah, pretty much the same here. We're all battening down the hatches a bit. Uh, but I'm glad that we've got you this morning because obviously Auckland's had a bit of a rough time weather-wise recently and that has been quite the problem for a lot of our listeners. Uh, so we're going to get stuck into some of the questions that we've had sent through in the last week. But if anyone listening right now has something they want to send in uh, and ask Justine, the number is 5395 and uh, I'll try my best to get through as many of those as we can. Um, let's st- get started here with this lovely mouldy one that we've got. I'm sure there's a few people with a similar problem here. Uh, yeah. someone's, someone said, hi, Justine, my work carpet is mouldy in places after the flooding last fortnight. My boss says it's fine because it's been professionally carpet cleaned, but it's definitely screwed. It stinks. He said, uh, can he make us keep coming in? It feels unsafe to be working there. And for context, they've said they work in a retail shop, so they don't have work from home options. So I, so this is a health and safety issue, right? And I think this is the way that we need to approach these kinds of things. Um, a mouldy carpet is a health and safety issue for, I, I hope, obvious reasons. Um, mould can be really bad for you. It's bad to inhale. And um, so really, like, it's not really up to him to just make that assessment. He needs to listen to you. Uh, do you I, do you have a health and safety rep on site? That's my first question. If you don't, it's about everyone, every worksite needs a health and safety rep, yeah? They play a really important role in, in kind of being able to raise these issues and to be able to kind of force the boss to take these things seriously. So I guess... 
My number one piece of advice is go about getting a health and safety rep. There's a lot of really good advice on, um, em- you know, employer.nz. That's the government's website. Um, maybe we can put it in the in the show notes so people can get to yeah. it. I can link to it. But um, a lot of advice on how you elect a health and safety rep. There's different rules depending on how big the organisation you work for is. But I think that that's one get a health safety rep. Um, in the meantime, though, I think you need to use that language. It's a health and safety issue um, and see where that goes because oftentimes bosses won't take things seriously until you use the legalese, right? Yes. So health and safety issue, that's the avenue I would try. Mold is a health and safety issue. Mold is a big so, one. Yes. Yeah, it's not good. Yeah. Don't don't be working in a moldy space for sure. No. Um, no, that's bad for your respiratory health. We, yeah, totally. And we, you know, we're all about respiratory health in the last three years. So <laughs> <laughs> let's get on to that all one. About it. <laughs> Thanks so much, Justine. Yeah. Uh, take care today and tomorrow, and we will Thank talk you to too. you very soon. Stay safe, everybody. Kakite. Yeah. Take that, the man. Red Dead Redemption with Auckland Union Representative Justine Sachs. You're listening to Educating from the Heart. Thank you for joining our lively conversations with teachers, support professionals, parents, and students as they share issues that matter most in our public schools. Here are your hosts, Tina Dunbar and Luke Flint. Hello and welcome to another episode of Educating from the Heart. This is Luke. I'm here along with my co-host. And I'm just wondering, Tina, for your children, was there ever a time as a parent that you wish they had fewer books available to them in the classroom? No. Most parents recognize that reading is important to learning. In fact, most parents would make sure that they their child has every book possible because one of the most important things about uh, student development or, or learning is exposure and exposing your children to as many things as possible and sitting down and talking with them about these things. That's, that's how you help children mature and grow and develop. Recently, we sat down with three parents to talk about what they want for their children and how it is quite different from the agenda that Governor DeSantis is pushing. I'm curious about how all of this politicization um, of schools is impacting your children. I'll jump in with one story, which I've shared before. Um, and I know, I know, Jen, I mean, obviously we all talk, um, but there was a story my eighth grader came home with the other day, which was really disturbing. They were talking, the teacher brought up Emmett Teal and talked about a lynching. And they, one of the kids said, what is a lynching? And the teacher paused and said, Ooh, I don't know if I can teach that. And this isn't, these are eighth grade students. And one of, and then the student said, what do you mean? Do they not want, who, what do you mean? They don't want us to learn. And the teacher said, some do and some don't. And to me, that is such an example that that is ri- ridiculous. Like these lynchings happen. They're not, they didn't happen that long ago in the grand scheme of things. And it is perfectly appropriate for, for students to understand that these things happen. And this, I, I will also add, is an advanced level English classes. Um, you know, we kind of had a similar example um, in Orange County last year, last fall. Um, 
there was somebody wasn't actually in the school, but it was happening at a school board meeting where a grandparent came in and was very upset that his second grader was reading a book about the Okoe massacre. And, you know, he tiptoed around his racism by saying, my second grader shouldn't be learning about murder. And it's like, no, that's not why you're mad about this book. Um, but it also is, it's stifling our LGBTQ kids as well. Um, you know, in Pasco County, safe space stickers were removed from classrooms, which is absolutely abhorrent. Um, you know, they're losing access to books books that they can read, their, you know, experiences, um, how they can identify, how to help them understand how they're feeling. Um, and it's really, you know, it's putting targets on the backs of students that are already marginalized to begin with. Yeah, and, and to piggyback off of all of it, I think one thing um, we need to reiterate is that what we've seen, especially in Brevard County, um, is the pressure on teachers, right? Um whether it's the Parent Bill of Rights or all this legislation that has, has passed, it's, it's put so much pressure. It has made teaching almost undesirable um, in Brevard County and I'm sure across Florida. Uh, and so teachers are put in a box like the scenarios we just talked about where they're afraid to even have these conversations. They're afraid to uh, discuss certain topics or um, address certain cur even current issues. Um, so from not necessarily direct experience outside of our teachers giving this feedback. And we do, our organization has teachers in it and uh, we correspond with teachers that have exited the profession. And a lot of it has been the fear of lawsuits, the fear of not having these discussions and just the loss of learning um, that is no longer a part of our public educational system because they cannot, or they feel like they cannot um, go into these topics without pressure from administration or the state or a parent that could potentially sue them or the school. Educating from the Heart is a production of the Florida Education Association. FEA is the statewide educators union with more than 150,000 members, including teachers, education staff professionals, higher education faculty, graduate assistants, students preparing to become teachers, and retired educators. And welcome again to the Heartland Labor Forum. I'm Judy Ansel. I'm Mark Galis. What has the National Labor Relations Board been up to some labor groups? The answer is not much. Despite having a Democratic majority for more than 18 months, the board has been issuing decisions at a glacial pace. Joining us is Robert Iafola, senior legal reporter for Bloomberg. He covers, among other things, the work of the National Labor Relations Board. Robert, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. There's been some criticism lately that the board has been moving too slowly. Here we are halfway through President Biden's term. We've had a Democratic majority on the board for some 18 months, and we've only had a trickle of cases. Is there anything to that criticism? There could be something to that criticism. The board is this deliberative body made up of really experienced people, but even the Democratic appointees might not agree on everything, and they have to hammer out these rulings. Also, the current chair, Lauren McFerrin, she was part of the Democratic majority during the Trump administration, and she had criticized the board at that time for what she saw as them skipping over some necessary steps when you have precedent-setting rulings. The main one is to ask for 
the public for comments. So they'll put out a notice to the public to say, hey, we're considering overturning precedent X. Any interested parties have this many weeks to get comments in. So she criticized the Trump board for skipping that step. And when I talked to her in January of, I guess it was 21, she said she was going to be following that for a lot of the major issues they're dealing with. And she conceded at the time, that's going to slow us down. But in her view of what it good government and proper deliberation and everything, that that was a necessary step. Mid-December, their ears must have been burning from all the criticism because they issued a flurry of decisions in rather short order within a few days of one another, I think maybe a lot on the same day. I'd like to talk about a couple of those now. One is the American Steel case dealing with micro units. Could you tell our listeners about that? So basically, this has to do with micro units which is basically if you have a workforce and if a union wants to organize a smaller group within that workforce, let's say they're organizing at a department store and they only want to organize at the X department, for example, or the automotive department. There's a legal standard that decides whether that's an appropriate unit or not. With this recent decision, uh, the board reverted back to the more union-friendly standard that had been in place during the Obama administration. And this is this trend, (laughs) the flip-flopping that happens at the board when partisan control changes. We're basically going from a a much more employer-friendly standard to a more worker-friendly standard. And that's not a new dynamic, is it? No, it's built into the way that the board operates. It's been happening for a while. It has accelerated in recent years, but it is a concern. It even has its own sort of legalese sounding name for it. Sort of labor lawyers talk about policy oscillation. It does inspire some on the part of employers and unions. Like, for example, near the end of the Obama administration, the board had handed down their rule in this Columbia University case, which basically recognized the employee status of student workers. They were employees under the act, and that gives them the right to organize. Now, that's an issue that had flip-flopped back in preceding years. So it came at the end of the Obama administration. There was a bunch of unions that had petitions to represent grad students waiting at the board, and they all pulled those petitions because they didn't want to give the Trump board an opportunity to reverse Columbia and take away that. So they basically went on hold for the duration of the Trump administration. And now we're seeing this real flowering of organizing on college campuses again. And that wouldn't that likely wouldn't have happened if the unions hadn't been strategic about dealing with policy oscillation, aka flip-flopping. You mentioned earlier that John Ring, his term ended earlier Um, in the year, last year, and the board is now down to four members, three Democrats and one Republican. Do you see the ring vacancy being filled anytime soon? Yeah. In talking with some sort of labor law folks about this, former board members and whatnot, I've developed an expectation that it probably, the seat probably won't be filled until the summer. There's some advantages for the majority for the, in these situations because the run-of-the-mill cases are decided by three-member panels. So if you have a 3-1 partisan split, then the majority party is always going to have the majority control of a three-member panel. So you won't have, when it's a full five members, you can have a situation where there's a Republican majority panel deciding a sort of a run-of-the-mill case. But anyhow, the reason why I think, or I've heard people saying they expect the ring seat to be filled sometime in the summer is because one of President Biden's appointees, Gwen Wilcox, her term, even though she just joined the board 
<laughs> last year, the way that the agency operates is the term on each seat is pegged to the seat itself, not to the person occupying that seat. So the seat that Gwen Wilcox occupies will expire in the summer. So they'll, the administration is going to need to renominate her. Nobody's expecting the administration to replace her. So they'll need to renominate her. So the idea is that Washington operating the way that it does, what will happen is in order to make the situation ail through the Senate is the administration will nominate a Republican board member to replace Ring or to fill Ring's empty seat, I should say. And then they'll also renominate Gwen Wilcox, and then the Senate will consider them both in a package. And because it's a bipartisan thing, it'll sail through. Very good. Robert Iafola, senior legal reporter for Bloomberg. Thank you for joining us. Thanks again for having me. You have been listening to the Heartland Labor Forum. We'll stay in the Midwest. But WRT Community Radio in Madison, Wisconsin, reports on recent charges of a hostile work environment at the Henry Violence Zoo. It has nothing to do with the animals. On Monday, the Personnel and Finance Committee of the Dane County Board of Supervisors heard disturbing testimony from Neil Rainford, staff representative of Ask Me Council 32. In early August 2022, the committee hired former Dane County Circuit Court Judge Valerie Bailey Wren to investigate charges directed toward managers at the Henry Vallis Zoo, which included allegations against managers of racism, anti-union activity, retaliation against whistleblowers, unequal discipline, and creating a hostile work environment. Eric Anderson, a veteran zookeeper of over 20 years' experience who was described by Rainford on Monday as a longtime activist, the head of the unit's Employee Relations Group, or ERG, and president of Ask Me Local 65, had come under particularly intense scrutiny by county management. The judge's report, issued in November, largely cleared managers of the worst employee relations charges, noting that, although investigations of workers had been intense, the county had taken no actual disciplinary measures against workers such as Anderson, who had brought complaints. At Monday's meeting, Rainford described what happened next. That report came on November 17th, 2022, to all of you. Less than 30 days later, on December 15th, Eric Anderson received uh, eight days suspension over five separate issues none of which followed the judge's investigation, all of which predated the judge's investigation, most of them going back to the summer and early spring of 2022, some going back as far as July of 2021. To Rainford, the conclusion is clear. The administration was very obviously sitting on these predisciplinary investigations that it had been racking up over the course of 2022 and not issuing any discipline in those regard until after Bailey Reen's investigation was done. Now, Rainford alleges county managers are targeting Anderson for his cooperative role in the judge's investigation, with the county claiming that the union rep had improper access to confidential documents. There are claims that the information that Eric shared as part of the investigation uh, were somehow confidential. There's already been a predisciplinary interrogation regarding this matter. And as Eric explained in that discussion, he was regularly in receipt of these AZA Zoo reports. Um, and I would submit that all of you have also received the same AZA Zoo report, as well as members of the public. It was widely distributed uh, over the past few years. Similarly, there was no misconduct, although there were allegations in the way that Mr. Anderson received the AZA Zoo report. Again, he received these reports in whole and in part as part of his regular duties as a zookeeper. 
However, Dane County Human Resources Director Kubara Makasa told the committee that this was not county board business. It has to do with his role as an employee getting confidential information. Employee Relations, or ER, is conducting an investigation into this matter. It is the role of ER to be involved in personnel matters. It is not the role of the county board to do so. To Rainford, however, the need for county board intervention is clear. We do ask the Dane County Personnel and Finance Committee that's responsible for overseeing the county's relationships with employees to direct the administration to stop this investigation. We maintain that it's patently retaliatory, that it's unlawful, that it's unfair, and that it's unwarranted. That was Neil Rainford, staff representative of AFSCME Council 32, speaking Monday at a public meeting of the Personnel and Finance Committee of the Dane County Board of Supervisors, where he outlined alleged ongoing retaliatory actions by county managers against AFSCME Local 65 President Eric Anderson. For Labor Radio, I'm Greg Jabosky. Hello and welcome to School Me, the National Education Association's podcast dedicated to helping educators thrive at every stage of their careers. I'm your host, Natika Samuels. To talk about teaching Black history in more unique and meaningful ways in February and beyond, we have Kevin Adams, a Colorado social studies teacher and host of the Two Dope Teachers podcast on the show today. Thank you so much for joining us today, Kevin. Of course. Glad to be here, Natika. Glad to be here. Honored to be here. How do you and your school approach Black History Month for your students and for the whole community? Well, Black History Month is one of my, as an educator, one of my favorite times of year. In our community, we've tried to make a conscious effort to celebrate Black History Month. So one way that our Black Student Alliance has uh, celebrated and raised awareness about Black History Month is we've had door decorating contests. So we actually put on a contest throughout the whole school it said, decorate your doors to commemorate Black history. And we've had, you know, really wonderful things that students and in their advisements, things that they've done. So really cool designs that show off the beauty of Black hair. My advisement once focused on Black artists, and we in particular zeroed in on the work of Romir Bearden and created an art showcase of his work. Other educators have focused on Black scientists in our science department, Black mathematicians, African contributions to mathematics, African culture, Black popular culture in the U.S. And so that's one way we have celebrated. But we also are fortunate enough in our community, we have a weekly all-school meeting. And at our all-school meeting, the Black Student Alliance has done things like sent in weekly announcements about lesser known figures in Black history, people like Masha P. Johnson, who was one of the leaders of Stonewall uprisings, but a variety of individuals that we just try to raise awareness. So that's one way that we kind of work as a Black Student Alliance to raise awareness in our community. But in our classrooms, a couple of years ago, we began to do what is called Black Lives Matter at School Week, which we have found particularly powerful. And it removes us from some of those kind of more common aspects of Black History Month and expands into looking at more kind of contemporary issues, whether that be the Black Lives Matter movement in general and the 13 principles that guide Black Lives Matter movement, but also having other colleagues 
implement research projects. So I've seen colleagues in science do research projects around black scientists, colleagues in math create word problems related to social issues in the black community. In my class, I've worked with sixth graders primarily, but I also this year I'm teaching African-American history, which is beautiful because again, I get to teach it all year round. But uh, really going over those 13 principles of the Black Lives Matter movement, but also looking at things like the school to prison pipeline and that's impact on the Black community. Looking, of course, at change makers like Obama, looking at people like Akeem Jeffries, a variety of politicians, but also really allowing kids to explore pop culture and also allowing kids to bring up issues that they want to know and inquire about Black history, Black culture, and the Black experience. So really opening it up, but I think one of the things that we have strived to do in my building is to encourage teachers to take risks, to try different things, but really make that Black history come alive for all of our students. Thank you so much for joining us today. I think I learned a lot and I hope that everybody listening did too. sign hit the city like a bolt of lightning. You know the photo. It's iconic. Marches in the streets, holding a simple sign with a simple message. I am a man. Memphis had probably one of the worst records on civil rights and human rights. So the sign hit a nerve. Coming in April... The I Am Story podcast explores the fight that inspired those words, how a group of sanitation workers in Memphis stood up and made history. This was truly a fight where the city was showing them no respect, no dignity, and wasn't about to do anything to change that behavior. So the workers took a stand, and they said enough was enough. Go to IamStory.com or wherever you get your podcasts to subscribe. We've reached the end of this edition of the Labour Radio Podcast Week, our weekly roundup of highlights from the many shows that make up the Labour Radio Podcast Network. I'll be honest with you, I can't remember the exact number of shows right now. There are quite a lot. I'm sure when Chris returns next week, he'll be a lot more precise. You can find full versions of almost all of the podcasts you've heard today in the show notes and many others at labourradionetwork.org. I say almost because I Am Story will release its first episode in April. Now you can write that on a poster and stick it on the fridge or, alternatively, you can follow us on social media at Labour Radio Pod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram and we'll let you know exactly when the first episode drops. Labour Radio Podcast Weekly was edited by Mel Smith, myself, Patrick Dixon, produced by Chris Garlock. Our social media is operated by Harold Phillips. For Labour Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Patrick Dixon. Hope to see you next time.